Hello, I'm Devin Moore. I am a proud Humanity Rise ambassador and the founder of Hashtag Race to Speak Up, an anti-bullying organization. Humanity Rising is a student-led movement to create a better and more compassionate world through service. We help students find their service passion and give them a voice to help them share what they're doing to make a positive difference in the world. Welcome to our Creating World Peace Through Unity Humanity Rising Voices podcast series hosted by Steve Sarowitz. We're really excited to have you guys here today. Joining Steve is Barbara Talley. Barbara Talley has been working in diversity, conflict resolution, effective communications, leadership, and race unity for over 40 years and has continuously offered programs professionally and in her community. In addition to training, she is a member of the National Speakers Association, a motivational speaker, and an author of six books. I'll turn it over to Steve to begin. I am a friend of Barbara's and a fan of Barbara's, and the most amazing thing about Barbara is her energy level. Some people say I have a lot of energy and I do a lot of things, but Barbara, I, I could never keep up with you. I don't think any, any two people can. So welcome to our show tonight, Barbara. I want to talk with you because people are concerned about racism, but I want to have a talk with you as Baha'i to Baha'i mm -hmm. on how to really combat that. What practical things can we do? This is a specific show of young people. What can we do in our own individual way, make the world a better place? Well, and thank you, Steve, for, for having me here. And thank you, Devin, for that introduction. One of the basic principles of the Baha'i faith is independent investigation of truth. See, I think most people don't really know the truth, don't really want to know the truth, or have been taught mistruths. So it's very difficult to fight something so insidious as racism if you don't have the truth. So that's the first thing. Now with so much social media and so much information coming from different people for different reasons, some people with too much input, they just freeze. They may be, if they could believe it, step up and do the right thing. Then there are people telling them that's fake news, that's not real, that's not true. So I think that's the first thing that we now have to not rely on even what, our, what shows up in our Facebook feed or Twitter or Instagram. We've got to check things out for ourselves. Another challenge with racism, a huge thing, is first of all, we've got a history that was never told. It's like you buried something there and people know it's buried. <laughs> Some people that, uh, that saw you buried say, hey, it's there. And other people are pretending it didn't happen. We got all this revisionist history. I think that America, individuals, Baha'is, every religionist that truly wants to have world peace, realize that world peace is founded on unity. Unity is founded on justice. Justice is founded on truth and fairness. I think too many people pretend, and I think we just got to get honest with each other, even if we don't want to hear what we have to hear. If we can truly be honest with each other, then I know where I stand. In fact, when I do leadership work, one of the first things I go into a group and people will say, here's our goal. Our goal is X, whatever X is. And you will have some leaders that will say, you're going to do X because you work for me or you want, you want to survive. And so they have to hold everybody accountable. So they have the big stick or the nice, however they do it in the particular leadership. I have learned that the Bible says where there's no vision, the people perish. We know we have to have a vision, but if different people are coming together from different perspectives, different ideologies, different experiences, different pains and traumas and struggles, there needs to be some gelling of the human beings 
to work together so that they can collectively work towards the goal. So trust is the foundation. If you I do agree. not have trust in an organization, in a community, in a family, in a relationship, in a friendship, if you don't have trust, what do you have? It's a hit or miss. It may work, it may not. So I think we need to have trust and trust is built on truth. So we start off with what, what is the truth about uh, America in its relationship in race? We just start there. I always say we're all swimming in this pea soup of racism. All of America is. That's hard for some people to hear and even myself. I've been swimming in this pea soup my whole life and, I, and I, it's my job to, to work out of it. We're raised that way, black and white. We're raised in this lie, essentially, that we're taught. And the lie is, in a nutshell, I'm better than you. I, I, I am better than you, Barbara, because I'm a white man. Two ways. I'm a, I'm a, and that's a lie. And we, we know from the Baha'i writings that that's a lie. I know from my observation, I, I really meant what I said, that I can't keep up with you energy-wise, but you're also a brilliant woman. The thing that I want to say about Barbara is she put together this amazing conference, the Pupil of the Eye Conference, the last two years, and she did it uh, literally on a wing and a prayer. She wasn't given a million dollars to do it. She did it solely by the force of her will. And I had the privilege of helping her a little bit and really much more of a privilege to watch it. She brought together these amazing people. One of the things that really in my mind needs to happen is this trust between black and white has to happen. So one of the things I really tried hard with Barbara is never to tell you what to do. You know, I, I came to support you. I just read this week in, in the Wall Street Journal that there's only four black CEOs of, of Fortune 500 companies, four. Now there should be, statistically, it should be 52. 13% of people are black in America, so 52. That number doesn't work. So in other words, there should be 13 times as many black CEOs as there are. But that's true all over the place. To watch that conference, and it's like watching a garden unfold for me because I'm hearing black voices so loudly now and beautifully, it's like seeing these beautiful flowers or imagine seeing this garden and I'm seeing these flowers in some ways for the first time, even as someone who's been doing this work, and I can't tell you how much I love it. It was, it was amazing for me. Yeah, the, the conference, just like much of America doesn't see us. One of my things I say quite often is, do you see me? Do you hear me? And does what I say matter to you? In fact, I tell people, if you adopt that model, that everybody that crosses your path, you see them. Don't see their hairstyle, don't see their race, don't see their color, don't see their gender, their wealth, their poverty, their orientation, their age. If you could just see a person and realize that's a soul, a soul that God created. As you mentioned, you have been taught that white men are better. And of course, you know, from the beginning of the country, the people that had the right to vote were white male landowning. The roots of America have never been about equity and justice and equality. And that's why Baha'u'llah says, the best of all things in my sight is justice. Turn not away therefrom if thou desireth me, and neglect it not that I may confide in thee. When you have the manifestation of God for that day and age, you feel that that voice is the one speaking to you. Your steps are not so tentative. If I'm hearing all these voices out here in the world, I can get confused and I can get paralyzed. I can get impotent and I can't do anything. Sometimes when you don't know what to do, you want to do something, but there's so much coming at you, you, you find yourself doing nothing and wasting that moment. You realize change only occurs in the current moment. See, so yeah. many people are worried about the past. 
They're worried about the future. They're angry about the past, worried about the future. But all we really have is here. If I really focused on the future, I could be impotent. I might not get out of bed. What black person is going to get shot in the back today? Well, who's going to pull me over and say I did something when I didn't do it? If, if that were the case, so I've, I'm trying not to focus on what I can't control. What I can control is this moment. This moment, I want to be the best person I can be. This moment, for those who cross my path, I want them to have been better because of that. Because the, the past is heavy. Trying to unravel it and fix it. But we could really start right now and show respect for everybody that cross our path, give opportunities. And as you said, it's kind of new. I'm seeing the same people, but in a different light. Because when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And that's what happened at the Pody Conference. Pody Conference stands for pupil of the eye. Because Baha'u'llah, probably the first Black Lives Matter activist, <laughs> he came to restore dignity to a downtrodden people. He came in the late 1800s with a message that we believe is the message from God. It's like where we want unity between humans. Baha'u'llah not only brought a message to bring unity between humans, he brought a message to bring unity between religions. I want to go back to just one thing, Barbara, the pupil of the eye. Yes. And the reason why you yes. named your conference pupil of the eye is because that's in the Baha'i writings. Yes. What is the pupil of the eye? And why did Baha'u'llah describe black people as the pupil of the eye? Yes. Baha'u'llah came for all kinds of unity, but one unity that was specific, that was so profound for people with dark skin, the people with African descent, was that he came for justice. Look at the world. What was the world like for Black people in the 1800s or 1900s or the 2020 for that Even matter? worse than it is today. <laughs> you know, and so, but Baha'u'llah came, as I said, he came to restore dignity to a downtrodden people. And basically, he, he gave us a special designation. He says, you are like the pupil of the eye through which the light of the spirit shines through. You think about it. And the light, the eye, it, it regulates the light that gets into a, a person so that they can see. And, and compared to humanity, we black people are the source of light for humanity. We reflect that which is before us. Harry and Tubman and I share a, a common great-great-grandfather. And I was thinking about the story about how she had to escape from the Eastern Shore. You think about how, how people were born and born into bondage and their children born into bondage. You didn't own your name. You didn't own your children. You didn't own your wife, your husband. You, you own nothing. And yet you worked an entire life. And imagine the number of prayers and prayers and prayers, praying to God to save them. And Baha'u'llah came with that message. He came with a message that says, know ye why we created you all from the same dust, that no one should exalt himself over the others? Lincoln uh, wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. At the same time, in 1863, Baha'u'llah says, slavery is abolished. I know that when Baha'u'llah came, here it was a man in Iran that was born of wealth, but he receives this message that he is to unite the religion. He, well, three onenesses, we're saying one God, one race, and one religion. So he gives up all of that and he spends his entire life over 40 years in prison, in horrible prisons, because he wanted to get this message that we are all one, that there's only been one God, even though we call him by different names, there's only been one religion. It's like different chapters in the same unfolding book. And there's only one human race. I remember when I read the Baha'i writings and, and, and it was saying, we've created you all from the same dust, that there's, not, that, that there's only one human race. That was profound to me over, 50 years ago, <laughs> to think that, because I've been taught that there's different races. There's a black race, a white race, a this race, a that race. And it says, no, there's only one human race. Race is a, a human construct. It was a category created 
so that capitalism could grow, so that there would be a permanent underclass that was visible. We're divided on many different issues, black and white and brown and immigrant. And, and I think that Baha'u'llah's message, which you just quoted, I love as well, mm -hmm. um, we're all the same dust. We need that message to really unite us, to, to say we're one common race. And also, as Baha'u'llah taught, we're one common religion, that there's one God and that it's one common country. The earth is but one country, mankind its citizens. I think we need this unifying message to realize that we're one. I feel lately that the divisions are really coming out there in public in this country. There's two steps there. Like, let's say all white people realize they were one. There are still differences in wealth and poverty and, and opportunities. So, so even though we're from the same dust, when people realize that, they're like, well, my dust is more, more than your dust kind of thing. So we have to go further into what Baha'u'llah came for. He says this oneness of humanity. The oneness means that I, I'm going to treat you like my brother, like my uncle, like my father, and you're going to treat me the same way. And your decisions that you make are going to be made thinking about me as family and not the other. We've been given some writings from, from the Universal House of Justice recently about this otherness. Because as long as people can paint you as the other, see, here's the thing, even, even with the brain, neuroscience teaches that if I can see you as the other, I will process information about you in a different part of my brain, literally. That's why you can see Dylan Roof shoot nine people and then the police won't even have their guns cocked to go pick him up. And then they say, are you hungry? And they go take in the Burger King and then they put their hand over his head when he gets in the car so they don't ruffle one blonde strand of his hair. So because they still see him as one, they look at him, boy, that could be my nephew, my cousin, but they, don't, they look at my kids my nephews, my uncles, my father, and they see us as other. So uh, I think you're, you're right, Steve, that this concept of the oneness of humanity that we both believe in is critical. Because if you can see me as one, then the other stuff. But as long as you see me as the other, then you can say, I deserve more than you. Now, well, we other, spiritually, we're all one. The other thing you, and there's one other aspect of that, and you kind of pointed out the differences in wealth. I've heard people say, almost, well, I would say always white people say, not all white people as well. We're all equal now. Black people got their rights. They got their right to vote. They got their right to go to school. Why are they upset? It's obvious that we have a long ways to go to make things equal. You can't just say they're equal and, and have 400 and some years of inequity, ter terrible endemic racism and, and injustice. And you can't snap your fingers and say, now you're equal. Okay, great. The race is over. Now the hard work begins to restore true equity and justice in my mind. And I'd love to hear your comments on that. It, it doesn't take a lot of Googling to figure out that every time Black people have had the opportunity or took the opportunity to uplift themselves, that the forces that don't want to, that, because see, if Black people uplift themselves, it messes with the narrative that we needed to be the ones ruling everybody. That's a narrative. It's like, we're smarter, we're them, they can't do that. I was just looking yesterday, just last night, looking at some things that Lincoln said, that Jefferson said, Robert Henry said, it's appalling the things that they just said about, they're not just like us, they're, they're other. So when you have that, that ideology in everything, in your education, your criminal justice or injustice, you have it throughout the programs, you have it at school. Let's just go back. Steve, you and I went to that workshop in Chicago when they were talking about the redlining, okay? So we know that if you cannot live in a certain neighborhood, your neighborhood determines the school you go to, that kind of education. The kind of education you get determines the college you get. 
The college you get to determines the job you get. The job you get determines how much money you get paid. How much money you get paid determines that. And so things have been have stopped. You know that Abdul Baha came here. You're right. Abdul Baha came here in 1912, and he told all the Bahais. He said, "Intermarry, meet together, because you have you cannot learn about race in, unless you got proximity to people. You can't read about a relationship in a book. You got to have a black friend, or an Asian friend, or whoever." I got to have a Jewish friend, otherwise, because I can pick up the stereotypes about Jews, but if I got a Jewish friend, and I'm like, well, Steve's not like that. And so yeah. that starts to put a little, uh, a little chip into the ice that has built up this iceberg that's all, you know, that could melt if we could just set some fire to that. Well, I, I agree. One thing that the Baha'i writings say is to be patient with each other. What I have learned is to be patient. Because what I have to do is sometimes take a breath and say to myself, there's a reason why maybe Barbara doesn't trust me. When I first, hey, Barbara, how are you? And she looks at me and says, who is this tall, skinny, white guy? And what does he want? <laughs> and is he going to be there loving me two seconds from now or two minutes from now or 20 minutes from now? Or is he going to be like some other white people in the past who've let me down? And I've gotten that reaction from more than one black person. And it's hard for me to just take a deep breath and say, be patient mm -hmm. because you have your own human ego and my feelings might get hurt, my fragile feelings. But, but I've tried really hard because the writings say to be patient and to understand. I don't take it personally. I try not to take it personally. I always try to say, well, Barbara has every right to distrust me until I prove. So I, one of my goals, I, honestly, I was thinking about this, is to be worthy of your trust and your friendship, to really work a little harder because, well, you in particular, Barbara, because I adore you. And I, and I think the world of you, but really everyone I meet who's black, I want to be worthy of their trust because I don't want to be, I don't want to let them down. I don't want to be yet another reason that you can trust. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think we have a lot of healing to do. So I want to be, uh, actually, I have another shirt that's black like this from our conference, Be the Healing. So mm -hmm. I kind of want to be part of that healing. And the writings say to be patient with each other. And something else you said, the writings say that every time we make a gain, that the forces against us will rise up. And that's what we're seeing right now. That was in the most recent letter from the House of Justices. Yes, we're in this unique time, but the, but right the next paragraph is like, okay, the forces are gonna come against you. And I wanna say to people, especially people who look like me, A, stand up and be counted. And I think you have to say loudly to the black people in your life that you're here for them, that you love them, and that you're gonna stand by their side and then do it. And then show them. Don't just put a, a Black Lives Matter on your, yard and say, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fight every day. And, and there's, a, as I said, a lot of injustice. So we had to work together. And I got to say this to my fellow white people, it's on us guys, more so, because guess what? Barbara still has racism against her. She still has injustice. I've just been given this white privilege and I've got the results of the white privilege and I've got to use all this that I've given to help change the world. And there's so many people like me. So please use what you've been given to help. You know, the thing is, all people are waiting for is just some truth and honesty. Once you have truth, once people are truthful, you say what you're going to do and you do what you say. That's really how it is with, uh, there's some work that I've done before um, with the Generative Leadership Institute. And they say that there's four speech acts because people get together and they talk. So first of all, there, there are opinions. A lot of times people get together and they just talk about opinions. Ch opinions don't change reality. Might change somebody's mind, maybe. Then there's facts. And even facts always don't change a person's mind unless they're open to being changed. But the other two things are requests and promises. Only requests and promises change reality. I request something, you promise something, you do what you promise. I, you, I, you ask me, I, I fulfill. 
that, and that builds trust. And once we have trust, then we can weigh in and consult about these hard issues like race. But we, if, if we don't have trust, we'll be in the room and they'll, uh, this tough, tough conversation will come up and I'm not gonna tell you what I feel. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're gonna do with the information. So trust is critical. And so once we have trust, we can weigh in. And once we weigh in and we can have an honest conversation, then we buy in. Once we buy in, we can hold ourselves accountable. And when we so hold ourselves accountable, we can meet any goal, eliminating racism. But if we just start off with the goal and we're not accountable because we haven't been heard, because we didn't, our, our opinions didn't matter, we didn't get a chance to say anything on it, we didn't get a chance to weigh in, and we didn't trust each other. That's what I was saying. If we can just learn to have truthfulness and trust and care, because as I said, if you see me as other, you will process information about me in a different part of your brain. You'll make excuses for everybody that look like you. Well, they were just that. It was a bad day. You know, you, you've got to trust each other and be respectful and care about each other. And then you can sit down and deal with different issues. If you don't, you are rude to each other. You're disrespectful to each other. You're not kind to each other. And all you do is rattle each other and you don't make a difference. So, so I think that the, one of the things I love about Baha'u'llah is that the, the writings he brought are fair to everybody. It's not fair to anybody, unfair to anybody. It says, no, you, you created from the same dust. So let your heart burn with loving kindness for all who may cross your path. He comes to this down group of, downtrodden group of people who have suffered for so much and so long. And he says, you are like the pupil of the eye through which the light of the spirit shines through. One of the other things that I love uh, about the faith and I am just grateful for is the influence it's had on changing things in America already. And it, we need to have more, but Martin Luther King had a tremendous Baha'i influences, both from his wife, Coretta Scott King. She had a Baha'i roommate and she wrote to the House of Justice after his death and got a beautiful letter back. And yeah. he was inspired by Elaine Locke. Martin Luther King talked about that, who was a wonderful Baha'i who started, who was, who was I think the force behind the Harlem Renaissance. He was also, who was the other one? Um, Martin Luther King has a famous quote about them. Uh, Dubois. Mm, yeah. Uh, du Bois. Is it Du Bois or Dubois? Well, people say it different ways, but as you're you're saying, Elaine Locke, he he put him in the same sentence as Plato, Aristotle. He's yes, and, du, and and W. E. B. Du Bois as well. And Du Bois was married to a Baha'i and yeah. was very knowledgeable of the faith. Yes, yes, yes. So Did you um, know anything about why Du Bois didn't become a Baha'i? I've, I've always been curious. Well, what I've heard was that he was very impressed by the writings. But as he was traveling with Louis Gregory and, and Elaine Locke, as they were going places, there were places where they were still having segregated meetings. And what I heard was that he saw these beautiful writings not put into practice, and that really um, uh, discouraged him. He was so disheartened. I think he said if he were going to do something, he would do it. And I think he came back closer to the faith in, in their, in, towards the end of his life. So, so many are called, but few are chosen. And... Think about it, of the 8 billion people on the planet and about 8 million people know about Baha'i, we're like the disciples of old and we're diverse disciples. How many disciples were diverse back in any religion? So, well, they weren't because it wasn't, that's right. it wasn't time yet, but now's the time. So now look what we are. We are, we are diverse disciples, so we're, we're changing the world together and we're creating a new world order that is made up of all of us. So it takes the best of all of us to create something that none of us have ever seen. It's not just one group creating something for the world. Now is the time, because we realize in 1844, the, when the Bob came, the precursor, the twin trumpet blast that Bible talk about, the Bob during that same, within a 24 hour period, I believe, 
the telegraph right. invented, was invented. And it went from Baltimore to Washington, because I'm in right outside of both of those. And it said, what hath God wrought for Samuel Morris? So basically, God gives us what we need at the time we need it. And look at what's happened. The patent office was getting ready to close right before that, because they said, we've invented everything there is to be invented. And now look at what we've done. Just because a little God bit. is here. 75% of the inventions in the history of the world have been invented since then. See? And just this little tiny time frame. Um, I wanted to touch on something you said, which is interesting, and I always talk about this. The new world order. Sounds really scary. And especially among evangelical Christians, there's always talk against the new world order. And mm -hmm. it's going to be run by the beast, and we're all going to have marks on our forehead. And it's going to be terrible, and we're all going to be digging in a ditch in this 120 degree weather and the beast is going to be whipping us all the whole world all eight billion of us and the beast is going to take care of all of us and the beast is the antichrist it's really an interesting fantasy because it could never come true literally physically could never come true and second of all the antichrist i always say this to christians just the very first part of that the antichrist has no power christ has all the power it's christ you know if you really believe in jesus christ you believe in the christ not the antichrist the antichrist is the opposite of christ so the if you really look at the Baha'i writings, the Baha'i writings say the Antichrist has no power. All the powers in Christ, which from our perspective as Baha'is, is all the messengers of God. That would be Baha'u'llah and the Bab and Muhammad and Jesus. But what I really say to people is I say, look, that's a really scary thing, this, this whole new world order, if it was like that. But what if it was like this? What if it was Christ returning in all his glory, literally with the name glory, because that's what Baha'u'llah means, the glory of God. And actually, that's what the Bible says he'll do in Matthew 16. I think it's 16, 27. He says, Christ will come in the glory of the Father. It says it three times in the Bible. And it says many times, I'm, I'm starting to read it now, where it says a lot of things about the glory of God and what's going to happen in the future. Uh, Revelation 21, I think, has a couple references to the glory of God. Specifically, where as a Baha'i, I could see it's clearly referring to Baha'u'llah. What if this Christ comes back, the Christ you're waiting for, and has created this beautiful new world order based on love and kindness and unity, the oneness of humanity, the elimination of all prejudice, wouldn't that be a good thing? A new world order in Christ. I, it's just so obvious to me, that's the only world order that would be worthwhile. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you look, as it is in heaven. Now, nobody thinks of heaven and thinks of what we have right now. Fires raging, people starving, people homeless, the water's messed up. As, he says, as it is in heaven, he says, thy kingdom come on earth. So clearly there needs to be a new something. And basically it's going to be new, right? And it has to be for the whole world because we realize we are all one now, this one globe. And because we are so disordered and so disorganized, clearly we would want something ordered. So we need a new world order. Christ did say, he says, I have much to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth shall come, he shall lead you to all truth. So when you look at the, the, the graphic right behind you, Steve, that's the, that's the Baha'i, that's Mount Carmel, that the Bible says, and Carmel shall see, her, his, see the glory in, in, in those latter days. That's it, where all these different plants are growing together. It was a desert. It was just a, a nothing. And now pe people from all over the world come there in unity to love. When people talk about a new world order, people get hung up on words. Bar Barbara, as a Jew, every Passover, I was waiting for Elijah. We had the cup out. We had this blank cup, an empty cup. Mm -hmm. And we would, we'd have, it was actually a wine glass. And we'd have an empty wine glass and we'd leave it there. And we leave the door open so Elijah would come in. 
And then last Passover, I'd been a Baha'i for now four or five years, five for five years. I said, finally got the courage to ask my family, I said, so what's going to happen if Elijah comes? How do we recognize him? What are we going to do? Um, funny thing about this little garden here, these, these beautiful gardens here. Do you know where the cave of Elijah is? Where? You could walk here from, from behind me. From, from, it's right on Mount Carmel, less than a mile and a half away. So the Jews, so all over the, the, Jew, the Jews all over the world, well, we don't actually, that's the real cave of Elijah, but it's been so many years, but that's called the cave of Elijah. So what's funny is, but we know he was in this area. And mm -hmm. so maybe he'd come back to where he came. Maybe he'd call himself Elijah or the herald prophet, because that's what, so the Jews, for the Jews, the, the Jewish expectation is that Elijah will come as the herald prophet. That's why we're waiting for Elijah. And then he'll herald the Christ, the Messiah. Well, what happens? The Bob comes in 1844, returns to Mount Carmel where he came from. Mile and a half away has this huge, you can't really see it so clearly behind me, you but you can see you know, huge, the whole dome temple, we can't see that. The huge golden dome and yeah. the, the shrine of the Bob. And he heralds Baha'u'llah, who says very clearly he was the return of Christ or the Messiah. And the so the gate, the gate. The, yes. Yeah, so that's what the Bob means, literally. It's interesting to me, all these signs we have. But I think the most important thing is that these, these lessons be spread all over the world. And that is really this idea of the unity of humanity has to be spread. And right now, I think we're at this unique time because a lot of people are waking up. As horrific as the murder on camera of George Floyd was and of Armand Arbery, the one that actually got me quite a bit was Armand Arbery. Well, all of them did, but- Because you jog. Because <laughs> I jog. I've been doing it for 40 years and so, I actually said this earlier today. I see myself in these people getting killed. But when you're, when you're a black man and you're seeing this, it's just right in your face. The difference is I know I can go out and run in any town, even a black area, I can go as a white man and run. But I have a, a black friend who runs. He's my height. He's, I always say, and it's true, he's younger, he's handsomer, my height. Mm -hmm. and, and he's very smart. He went to the University of Chicago. He's smarter than me too. He's, he's like, he's, he's, there's no reason anyone should ever bother this man, mm -hmm. except maybe for girls to chase after him. <laughs> but he doesn't get that. He has been thrown on the hood of a car. He's had a couple incidents while running that that's one thing you have to do. So you have to start listening. When I first became a Baha'i, I went to Van Gilmer, who you know, mm -hmm. and I said to Van, things are getting better for black people. <laughs> and patience, in this case, on the part about Van. Van so kindly and patiently explained to me that no, they weren't. I've been listening more and more over these last five years to stories. I'm uh, utterly convinced that you can't escape. You can't escape your blackness right now in, in this atmosphere. It's like a burden you're carrying every day. Anything I can do to lift that burden off you, I have to do. Like literally, almost lay, like, uh, the song, like a bridge over troubled water by Simon and Garfunkel. Anything I can do because of this power I've been given, I have to do. And you know, Steve, that's how people heal. You know, we know that our communities and our government, um, the high community or even the government, they're supposed to, the institutions are to be just. If the institutions are just, let's say you, you throw something at me and I'm supposed to turn the cheek and forgive you. Well, if you throw it at me, logic says, no, I'm not going to just keep throwing. But let's say the institutions or the government or the law stepped up and said, Steve, you can't do that to Barbara. And now I feel safe that there is going to be justice. I can heal. 
I can then maybe be able to forgive and say, wait a minute, Steve was, he's on that medicine, something happened, or he was raised by some lunatics, or I can start to think, join that. How did you know all that, Barbara? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I could begin to think about some conversation that, that would keep me from like punching you because, or stopping it. I'm not just going to stand there. But, but what's happening is we're finding that the institutions are, 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 are like acting like individuals and forgiven folks. So that, and so people are continue to harm us. We're told in the faith that it is the duty, the, the first and inescapable obligation of every community listed under the banner of Baha'u'llah, that the first and inescapable duty is to nurture, encourage, and safeguard all the minorities in their midst, whether it's race or religion or anything. So if you see any group of people who have a numerical uh, uh, small number and they're being oppressed, that's our job to step up for them, whether it's women or men or it could be any. And so that's the job for us to do. So when we start doing that, we literally start doing that. We are going to create a different kind of society where everybody doesn't feel like I got to have a thousand guns to protect myself because I can trust the institutions, the law to protect me. But right now, everybody's trying to get armed. Really, nobody trusts because I can't forgive you while you're still hitting me. And if the government's not going to stop you from hitting me, the law's not, then I got to take care of myself. One of the biggest things you talked about early on was proximity. We need black and white to have proximity. That's interracial marriage, yes. You're what you don't know. Yes. You need deep friendships. Inviting, we have to be in each other's homes. We have to be working side by side to fight this. I, I had Jamie Heath. Do you know Jamie Heath? Oh, yes, yes. I, I, I assumed Wonderful you did. Wonderful music, yes, yes. Yes, I interviewed Jamie for, I'm doing a thing for my community to fight racism um, mm-hmm. with Hugh Semple. We're on, we serve on our local spiritual assembly. And Jamie talked about really having to be in each other's lives, mm-hmm. deeply in each other's lives. And mm-hmm. I'm working on that you know, when I think about it. So I'm the only white one in my family. One of the things that was interesting is when my son got a little older and I looked at him one day and saw a young man of color and had to have the talk. You want to talk about someone who's ill-prepared to have the talk? (laughs) (laughs) My son looking at me like, and of course my son kind of explained to me that he already knew everything I said and just, you know, You just feel like that, I've needed that to survive. Yeah, Yeah, like dad, shut up. Like any teenager will say to your dad, but particularly uh, Mr. White Dad trying to explain to my son. But it really hit me like a ton of bricks that anyone could hate my son. Um, for the color of his skin, and I've seen it. And he's, my son is significantly darker than me, my beautiful, handsome son. And I just saw him for many, for the first several years of his life, just, he was my, my son. And it wasn't until I saw that the world would attack him. Still my beautiful, handsome son. I, I would do anything. I would throw myself in front of a bullet for him. God, that's, why I, I, that's why Abdu'l-Bahá said marry, because you might have empathy for somebody until that's your own child. And then it's a whole different thing. And now you're looking out. Before, you might not have noticed that. If, you're, if you'd had a child that wasn't dark and it was the same, whatever, you might not have to have the talk. You wouldn't have to think about that. But what we need to have you do is think about that, even though it's not your child, and look at all those other children out there and saying, with my power, what can I do to stop that? And I know you do that. And I really commend you, Steve, because you're looking out there. I, I, I saw you at the Be the Healing. I saw you walking up to people. How can I help? How can I help? That's your heart. I, I, I want you to co-opt a whole lot of other folks like you to get in the fight, you know, when, get when in I, the ring with us, you know? I was at a conference. It was okay. a philanthropy conference. The first speaker was Robert Smith, mm-hmm. who's wonderful. 
And he talked obviously a little bit about racism. And then the next person talked about COVID. And at the end of the conference, we had about 75 people there and we're having now open discussion between everyone else who was there. And we talked about COVID and COVID and COVID. And I'm like about 15 minutes into talking about COVID, I finally raised my hand and said, guys, nobody's mentioning racism. Can we talk about that? And we talked about racism for about another minute and went back to COVID, but I tried. <laughs> a whole minute, wow, yeah. yeah. Um, afterwards, a couple of people thanked me. And I do think that uh, actually the House of Justice told me that I would have an opportunity to be in rooms like that and I needed to use my voice. And I thought initially it was just to use my voice to tell people about Baha'u'llah, but I think it's actually more so Justice. to use my, use my voice to, to, to not just to talk about him, but to talk about this oneness of humanity in ways to make things better. One final thing, Steve, I, there was some work that a woman had done years ago. I read this thing and I never forgot it. The native people have a tradition that says that any group of people that comes together for a shared meaning and a shared purpose is called a medicine wheel. It's called a medicine wheel because everybody that shows up has what everybody else needs to heal. Steve started off, we're all in this toxic racist soup and we're all showing up and we got a common purpose that we want to get rid of this stuff. We don't want to swim in that anymore. We want a future of peace. And we realize we're all willing and committed to do our part. And that we have this shared meaning and a shared purpose. And we realize that we're all wounded. So we're very gentle and compassionate with each other. I think if we start there, knit one heart at a time and keep it moving. And then tell my friends, they say, oh, you know, you can't trust anyway. I'm like, say, well, I can trust this one. Let me introduce you. And we keep widening the circle and praying, praying to God to guide us to those people who are ready and not to those that want to keep us wounded. I think if we do that, I think we can change the world. I know we can change the world. I know that our thoughts, as a man thinketh, so is he. And as a woman thinketh, so is she. And I think we can take this. I think that God did not create us. Christ says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's help God's will on earth be done. You encourage me when I see people, because if I didn't see white people doing stuff, I'd be wondering, okay, is it just me and Devin got to do this? But I see you and I see Debbie, and I see all these other folks. There's lots of people out there doing stuff and that gives us hope. And with hope, we can keep it moving. Hope well, heals Deb, all of us. Heals all Deb, Debbie's got the heart. She's got a heart big enough for all of us and she's trying with youth, that's her life. She's dedicated her life to helping youth. We're all in it together. I'll try to do my part, Barbara. I'll, I'll swing and miss sometimes. I'll make mistakes sometimes, but I'll keep trying. And that's the biggest thing I say to people is just keep trying and don't ever stop. This is a snake that we have to kill together. The snake of racism that's around all of our throats. Yes. Let's, let's work together to kill it and work with love. That medicine is love. It's and we love. gotta do it daily. We gotta do it daily. You cannot stop. It's like a boat. You stop, it rolls back. I do this stuff every single day. I've got a website, uh, www.worldembracing.net. Seven days a week, we're having the race conversation. We start with a conversation. We build uh, friendships, then we change the world. Thank you, Steve. Uh, one, one last thing I'm going to say, and I don't usually, I haven't talked much about this, but I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Um, I'm going to have a press conference with a, a friend of mine by the name of Beatrice Roberson. Her son was killed. Mm. Uh, Jamel Roberson, he was the security guard and he was killed. Uh, he was doing his job, actually he was the hero. And he um, was doing his job um, in the south suburbs of Chicago and he was killed by a policeman who shot him four times in the back with an AR-15. And 
it's been a year and a half and we've had no justice. Um, I don't know that he was killed because he was a black man. I can't say that because it was a chaotic scene. But all I can say is this, it's two and a half times as likely it was going to happen to him than it was going to happen to me, which it didn't help. I'm, I've been fighting for justice because I love his mother. She's an amazing woman. And I know he was, he was a really good kid. And I want to see a world where that statistic goes away. I'd like to go down to zero. I'd like nobody to be killed by police. There are policemen who are trying to do a good job all over the place. What we need to do is we need to get rid of bad police. And we need to take our whole country and make it more loving and kind. It's all of us to get to a country that works better, where, where we don't feel like we need armed police, where we don't feel like we need guns to protect you. This is where the love comes in. We need to work on healing our country. Let's get rid of that violence. We need our hearts. And our real protection and our only protection is in God. Barbara and, and Devin, I, I love you both. I really appreciate this time with you. And um, I will continue as you do, Barbara, to work every day to make this a better world. And so we're going to have success. Eventually we will. Because we got Devin and Radiance to pick up the baton when we can't hold it anymore. <laughs> so thank you. I'm so happy to meet you, Devin, and to know that you're out there working against bullying and justice for people who may not have a voice or who are oppressed. So thank you for being you. I appreciate you.